KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. A new plan to expand cleanup for cross-border sewage contamination. They're going to double the capacity. That's the first big project that they hope to do. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A look at how the infrastructure money could be spent in San Diego. It is an amazing opportunity for this region to move major infrastructure projects. Then we expand that conversation to look at how the trillion-dollar infrastructure package could impact California. Plus, the Padres have a new manager. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. The announcement of a major cross-border sewage project and San Diego makes plans for federal infrastructure money. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's Tuesday, November 9th. Beach closures along the southern coastline due to sewage are unfortunately nothing new for the San Diego-Tijuana region. Cross-border sewage spills have been a major problem here for decades, resulting in not only closed beaches, but also health hazards for residents on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. A new plan by the EPA aims to improve that by doubling the capacity of the International Wastewater Treatment Plant along the border. Here to tell us more about the project and its potential impact on the region is KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome. My pleasure. So, okay, what exactly did the EPA announce yesterday? Well, the EPA basically laid out its vision for how they're going to go about fixing this problem. And the vision that they laid out was a pretty big project. Uh, They're looking at spending somewhere in the neighborhood of $630 million. That'll include a variety of different projects. That's things like expanding the International Wastewater Treatment Plant. They're also going to build another facility right next door that'll treat river water coming down the Tijuana River Valley. They're going to improve the collectors on the uh, canyon collectors on the U.S. side of the border. And they're going to do some things in Mexico as well, uh, including possibly building a treatment facility uh, uh, near Punta Banderas, that's south of Tijuana, and maybe recycling some water that will end up in the uh, Rodriguez Dam. And can you sort of put this into context for us? I mean, how much water is treated now and how could this uh, proposed plan change that? Yeah, the existing International Wastewater Treatment Plant, which was built back in the 1990s, the late 1990s, was built and designed for a problem that existed then. It's going to be able to treat 25 million 
gallons of water a day that was coming across the border at that time. But the problem is, is that Tijuana continued to grow since then, and the amount of sewage coming across the border continued to grow as well. And so this plant really didn't keep solving the problem it was designed to solve very long. They've expanded it a little bit. Capacity is about 30 million gallons a day now. They're going to double the capacity. That's the first big project that they hope to do, double the capacity to 60 million gallons a day. And then with this new plant right next door, another 60 million gallons a day. So they'll be capable of treating 120 million gallons a day of tainted water that flows across the border. Is that enough? They say it is enough combined with the other projects that they're looking at to be able to take care of the situation and reduce the days of beach closures in the Imperial Beach area by about 95%. Basically, the dry weather flows that currently happen in Falva, the ocean waters, uh, reduced to just 5% of the existing contamination that they have. So it will have an impact if everything is built out the way that they hope. So how will this plan be funded? That's one of the things that they'll be looking at in the future. Right now, they only have about $300 million, which was funding that came through the USMCA, the United States-Mexico-Canada Border Trade Agreement. They set aside $300 million for the EPA, which the EPA then dedicated for use in the Tijuana River. But that only counts for about a little bit less than half of the money they need to do everything that they want to do. And what they're going to do is uh, look to the state for some funding, state of California, to help with that a little bit. They're going to look to the Environmental Protection Agency's Wastewater Border Project account funding. They're hoping to be able to lobby congressional lawmakers. uh, Well, the EPA is not going to be lobbying them, but maybe the Congress can add some more money to this effort to help meet its goal. And they're going to be looking to Mexico to help pay for some of the solutions that might happen in the Tijuana area. And, you know, obviously, this issue of cross-border sewage is an issue that involves two countries, both Mexico and the U.S. So how is the U.S. working with Mexico to to fix this problem? Well, the EPA talks to Mexico every other week, uh, and they have for, for a long period of time. So the dialogue has been happening there. It's a question, I think, a commitment of of how they're going to spend the money. Now, there there are some interesting ways that Mexico has helped fund uh, some of the projects that have been done there, some of the sewage collection projects on their side of the border. You know, they've supported the uh, North American Development Bank, which is an agency that basically is allowed to spend U.S. dollars on the Mexican side of the border. So that might be one avenue that Mexico can take. And there may just be a convincing Mexico that they need to spend money on treatment facilities uh, in Tijuana. And it needs to be part of that regional solution. If you could talk a bit about how cross-border sewage spills impact people who live near them? What happens is because Tijuana sits up on a hill, the sewage flows downhill and it flows downhill into the United States. Uh, Left unabated, that sewage would flow through the Tijuana River Valley into the Tijuana Estuary and through that estuary and out into the ocean. That's one of the problems. The other problem is, is that There is an existing sewage treatment plant south of Tijuana right now that is supposed to be capable of treating the sewage generated in Tijuana, but that plant simply doesn't work. And right now, 
it's uh, basically a conduit for untreated sewage that reaches the ocean south of Tijuana. And if the swell is moving in a northerly direction, it carries that sewage up into the uh, San Diego ocean waters. Uh, so there are two big problems that happen. And the impact, you know, it can be a health impact. People react poorly to the stench of sewage. Uh, they, they worry about airborne particles out of the sewage. They worry about swimming in an ocean that's contaminated with sewage water because it can have a direct impact on, on the health of people who, who recreate there. All those impacts are very real and they've happened uh, for years. Um, and it's kind of been in the last couple of years, uh, the impact of the sewage has really been growing and a lot more sewage that's been untreated has crossed into the United States and then out into the ocean. So what comes next in this project? What's the timeline here? Well, the immediate thing is, is that the Environmental Protection Agency has said it's going to start the environmental reviews, the National Environmental Policy Act reviews required for projects like this. They think they can get the expansion of the International Wastewater Treatment Plant done pretty quickly because it has a pretty small footprint. The land area has already been uh, disturbed. They also want to build that additional sewage treatment plant right next door. It's in the same area, doesn't impact that much, and they think that'll move relatively quickly. Uh, what might take some time is their plan to create this diversionary system to pull water out of the Tijuana River because that could impact endangered species. It could impact uh, riparian habitat. And there are a few more hurdles to jump over to get passage uh, by the, the NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. So that's going to take a little bit of time, but they're doing this in stages. And what they're hoping is, is that, you know, they've got some money to start the International Wastewater Treatment Plant expansion, that $300 million already in the bank, ready to go. They can start with that project, do the environmental review quickly, and then kind of pick up on the other projects as they move toward that comprehensive solution. Mm, I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, thank you. My pleasure. The new trillion-dollar infrastructure bill passed by Congress last week is designed to overhaul and reimagine much of the nation's roadways, bridges, ports, rail transit, and power grid. San Diego is in line to receive tens of millions of dollars from the bill, and, as it happens, the San Diego Association of Governments is presently working on updating the next regional transportation plan, a project that could include creating a rail connection to the San Diego airport as well as other improvements. How the federal infrastructure bill could affect San Diego's ambitious infrastructure plans is right now being determined by SANDAG officials. Joining me is Hassan Ikrata, Chief Executive Officer of the San Diego Association of Governments. Hassan, welcome to the program. Uh, good to be with you. Thank you, Maureen. Is San Diego guaranteed a certain amount of money under the infrastructure bill? Absolutely. Um, there's two parts to the bill. One is the formula funding that we're going to get from Washington, but the most importantly is the grant funding we could get if we put good applications together. And I can tell you that this federal bill is a welcome news. It is an amazing opportunity for this region to move major infrastructure projects. To say it lightly, this national infrastructure bill puts every federal funding program in steroids. It doubles the federal program to support and expand the regional rail system. It 
makes projects like fixing the Delmar Prof, moving the trunk uh, more achievable. It funds border infrastructure and makes our Otay Mesa 2 project uh, more achievable. Uh, it, it moves us into the future when it comes to electric charging. It's an amazing program, and I think San Diego region will be one of the regions that use as an example of how successful it's been. As you mentioned, much of the money will be allocated under the discretion of the Department of Transportation, those grant funds, as you said. How is San Diego prepared to compete for those funds? We, in the last couple of years, we actually have proven that we can get federal and state funding because we have very innovative and creative programs. Uh, we are ready at Sandag to put, actually we've been ready for a while to apply for funding to move the tracks of the bluff, to stabilize the bluff, to build the Otay Mesa to, to continue with our environmental work on the new commuter rail lines. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna immediately, once the department is ready with the rules, we're gonna immediately put this application. And not only that, this application has all the innovation and the data needed to make them successful. So we're we're more than ready at San Diego. And, and this is something your listeners probably be interested to know. Uh, San Diego, when it comes to you know population, we're about one percent of the of the nation's population. But if you look at our history, we got more than one percent of the funding because we're creative, we're innovative, we're ready to go. And this five big moves, this plan that we're just about to go to our board to adopt has definitely reimagined the future of transportation in San Diego, have definitely put us in line to compete and and be the best competitor for all these programs that this national bill has. So we're ready, uh, Maureen, we're ready to go and, and we're ready to receive significant funding from the federal government. So you're saying you think the proposed new regional transportation plan uh, gives us an edge in competing for the funds because of the kinds of projects in it. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, th- this plan, as I said, not only reimagines the future of transportation in San Diego, but goes into the areas that this bill emphasizes: rail, which we're putting 200 miles of air rail, and we're gonna we're about to start the environmental work in that moving the, the tracks of the Delmar Bluff and stabilizing the bluff for good, building the tunnel needed for that. We're, we just signed a memorandum of understanding with our partners in Mexico and Otay Mesa too. Uh, we're building a central mobility hub and making uh, providing choices for San Diegans to get around. So this, the five big moves, the new plan, definitely position us not only to compete for federal, but for state funding, it, it positions us to be very successful. And exa- we were expecting exactly what's happening in DC right now when we start the work on this. Now, would monies received from the infrastructure bill allow Sandag to abandon ideas like charging a four cent a mile driving fee to fund transportation projects? The simple answer is yes, it could. We, we still need to know uh, the, the impact of this uh, in the overall uh, regional transportation plan, but if we could get, because of the stimulus, national stimulus, we could get enough money. Obviously, we we need the local funding. They haven't been 
in history and many projects that were 100% funded by the federal government. So you need the local match to be successful. Every project requires you to put local money on the table. We're about to deliver the mid-cost, the $2.2 billion project. The federal government paid half, about a billion, and we paid half. So I don't expect this would replace the need for federal funding, but the local funding. But would this, for example, look at the statewide road charge? That's going to have to be there because that's what the state is going to do by 2030. The additional road charge? Yes, we're going to evaluate and see whether we still need this, but absolutely it's going to impact our local financial strategy moving forward. Aren't there climate considerations, though, in that four cent a mile driving fee to try to get people off roads and onto public transportation? Totally. Uh, I think, uh, Maureen, I spoke to you and Andrew Bowen when I started here but almost three years ago, and I told you, and I you could research this article, I told you climate change is gonna drive our transportation decisions. And that's exactly still true today. Climate change is driving it. Uh, the road user charge is a very effective strategy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that continue to be part of the discussion. But even if we scale down uh, the, the, the local funding sources, we still need to come up with measures to reduce greenhouse emission because we're required to do it by state law. So yes, there is global warming consideration for that, not only funding. And now that giving that we have a national stimulus that we think we're gonna compete well for, do we need the state charge and the local charge or do we need one of them? That's something we still don't know the answer to. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're gonna have a plan that meets the state greenhouse gas emission reduction, that meets the federal requirement of financial constraints and meets our goals as a region to move forward with a system that reimagines the future of transportation. And how quickly do you expect the funds to be released and these projects started? I believe, uh, um, uh, this is the optimist in me, uh, I believe by, by the end of this year, we should, we should hopefully see a final rules. Uh, but for us, we are writing the application right now in anticipation of these rules being finalized. Uh, quickly, it uh, depended uh, the stages of the project. We have right now a billion dollar worth of projects that are ready to go. We're ready to cut the ground. But we have multiple billion dollar projects that we're still in the environmental uh, and design process. And that is where I hope when the Department of Transportation, the National Department of Transportation put the rules out that they allow projects in the environmental stage to be eligible. And, and that's our hope. So it could be very quickly, but it will all depend how quickly the rules can be put in place so the rules of the game are clear. I've been speaking with Hassan Igrata, Chief Executive Officer of the San Diego Association of Governments. Hassan, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Good to be with you again. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman.
Earlier in the program, we discussed how the massive new federal infrastructure bill might help San Diego, but the entire state of California is also asking the same question. To find out more about what might be on the state's wish list, the California Report's Laura Cliven spoke to Serena Alexander, associate professor with the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at San Jose State University. Professor Alexander starts by talking about the impacts of the package on Californians. So first of all, it will create some jobs in the construction industry and also other immediately related sectors. So if you are employed in these sectors or looking for a job, you'll probably feel the impact. Then there is a ripple effect of every dollar spent by closely related industries as a dollar moves through other industries and also through the local economy. So even if you're not in construction or related uh, fields, you will still see the impact in the local economy. Uh, and eventually the, the funding is large enough that it will make the US economy more productive. Uh, and theoretically, the U.S. consumers will see the impact of this in the goods and services that they use. My understanding is that the majority of funding for transportation in California comes from local and state sources. Can you give us a sense of what piece of the pie this infusion of cash would be? So, of course, not all of that money is going to be spent in California, and it is expected that, you know, the state government and also other levels of government in California will be still involved in funding transportation, but it will definitely make a big difference, especially as it is related to, uh, you know, maintaining and upgrading roads and bridges. There is a large amount of money that will be spent in roads and bridges, and we haven't, we haven't seen that, uh, you know, in that amount in many years. And also this allocation of money will potentially create, uh, you know, things like new bus routes or improved transit service uh, that will help Californians, especially the seniors and the disabled and the people that are transit dependent. So they will see the impact uh, related to that. A lot of the things we're talking about is making transportation easier. And we in California our biggest emissions come from transportation. So how does this intersect with climate mitigation or adaptation? We have seen various changes to this particular infrastructure bill and also various iterations to it. And unfortunately, what we have seen, you know, over these changes is that some of the funding related to climate change uh, has evaporated in the process. But that said, the current bill still includes some investment in things like uh, electric school buses and vehicle charging stations that are important. And at the same time, it invests in public transportation, also investment in resilience. Um, so we will see some investments specifically related to how do we build a more resilient, resilient transportation system. Um, as related to, you know, the goal of the state to reduce emissions from transportation, we do know that it has been very tough. Uh, transportation has proven very difficult to deal with in terms of emissions. And, you know, in terms of meeting our transportation emission goals, we have to make drastic changes in the ways we see mobility in California and also in the nation. The bill will help move us towards those goals a little easier, but 
uh, I think that we still have to continue to come up with innovative strategies to think about mobility in a way that will uh, address climate change in the long run. That was Serena Alexander, an associate professor with the Department of Urban and Regional Planning at San Jose State University, speaking with the California Report's Laura Clivens. One of the kinks that's causing disruptions in the global supply chain is a severe shortage of truckers. KPBS reporter Alexandra Ronhell examines this issue and visits a local driving school working to keep up with demand. Breaks in. A little blow on the horn there, make sure nobody's out hanging out. Andre Weston is a driving instructor at United Truck Driving School in Mission Valley. I'm going to teach him how to do a little bit of upshifting. A year ago, this job wasn't in Weston's plans, but then the pandemic hit and he saw the need for his expertise. I thought I was going to retire. I did retire, and then I see this ad, and I'm thinking, Wait a minute, I got 20 years of experience and I'm thinking, man, you're sitting here wasting it. Why don't you go out there and see what happens? Go talk to them. Careers in trucking have long been a path for the middle class who don't have college degrees, but it's a grueling job that doesn't attract many younger workers. And now a wave of retirements is washing over the industry, leaving firms in desperate straits. According to the American Trucking Associations, the industry is short 80,000 drivers. That number is expected to double by 2030 if major progress isn't made. Philip Harris is also a retired trucker and now the admissions counselor at United. He says it's a shortage that has accumulated over the years. With COVID came out, the guys that were going to retire in three to four years just said, nah, we're done. And then DMVs were closed, so they weren't able to license new drivers, which takes about six months to really get the good training. But the need has never been greater. The ATA estimates that 72% of the nation's freight gets moved by truckers. We have been posting everywhere. From billboards to Craigslist to recruiting at diesel gas stations, Roberto Rodriguez says he's tried every avenue to look for new hires. Down here in San Diego, in California especially, we don't have enough drivers. The drivers that already have their permits, their license, they are working for big companies. He's increased pay, but as he raises the bar, other companies do the same. Pay is going up. We have one major company that last year was paying in the $20 range. They now are paying their Class A drivers $25 an hour. Gary Smith is the placement instructor for United. He says companies are now willing to hire drivers with no experience as long as they have a license. That used to be unheard of. Rodriguez says he can't be choosy. Right now, he has a thousand trailers on his lot waiting to be picked up. We have been working uh, with a lot of uh, lawyers, uh, law firms, to verify they can help us to do any process so we can give Mexican drivers the opportunity to work down here. Neutral, brakes, flashes are still on. As companies scramble to fill driver seats, United Trucking School is doing its part to fill the need. We take them from almost ground zero and uh, teach them all the skills and knowledge in order to become professional truck drivers. During the four-week course, students earn their Class A and Class B commercial driving license and are helped with job placement. The news of the driver shortage and higher pay appears to be having an effect. For the first time ever, United has a wait list of students looking to join the program, and applicants are coming from diverse backgrounds. We've been very inundated with students. Uh, students are just, we're, we're booked out till January. Theron Gray is currently enrolled in the program, 
But it's not his first time getting his CDL. He left trucking a few years back when his daughter was born because he wanted to be home more. But with incentives increasing for drivers, he's ready to hit the road again. So there's a lot of work available right now for truck drivers. A lot of people are going into other careers that are more corporate white collar and they're kind of leaving the blue collar jobs behind and these companies need bodies in the seats. Yet the trucker lifestyle isn't for everyone. Harris says he's very blunt with students who are looking to enroll. We don't get to see our families a lot. We're on the road a lot of times. Most truckers average only seeing their family about 12 days out of the year. You know, your shifting's getting really good lately, right? You're upshifting, you're downshifting. All of that's been, yeah, it's really coming through. As for Wesson, he's just grateful he gets to contribute to teaching the next generation of drivers. I think we can get there together. Uh, keep America moving, so to speak, because right now we're backed up and it's bad. Alexandra Rangel, KPBS News. This story was made possible with support from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Thanksgiving and the holiday season are always important times of year for the Feeding San Diego organization. Hunger relief groups try to gear up to make sure people can get access to the foods that make the holidays something special. This year, Feeding San Diego is also gearing up for another special event. Starting January 1st, a new state law requires food handling businesses like supermarkets to start donating surplus edible food to hunger relief organizations like Feeding San Diego. That means that those organizations will have to increase both capacity and distribution to feed more people and keep more discarded food waste out of landfills. Joining me is Feeding San Diego Chief Supply Chain Officer Patty O'Connor. Patty, welcome. Thank you. Now, Feeding San Diego already gets quite a lot of food donated from local food businesses. So how does this new law, Senate Bill 1383, how does that change the status quo? Well, it changes the status quo by now. It's a requirement starting January 1st. Um, before it was the people that would be donating to us were doing it for various reasons, but it wasn't a requirement by law. And starting January 1st, grocery stores and other they call them food generators, are going to be required to donate their excess edible food. So it will increase the amount of food that goes back into the community. And climate change is sort of the real target of this bill, at least the co-target of this bill. How will rescuing and donating more food help mitigate climate change? So what we can tell you is that food, when it goes into the landfill, generates methane. And methane is, of course, one of the worst pollutants. And with so much food going into the landfill, it's generating so much methane and affecting our environment. So this bill does something that's twofold, which is so great. It's reducing the amount of landfill and improving the environment. And at the same time, it is rescuing food that would otherwise go into the landfill. So we're feeding people at the same time. So this bill creates two tiers of food businesses that have to start donating surplus food. Tell us more about that. Correct. So January 1st, 2022, the first group of people that will have to be doing that um, are going to be the larger grocery stores, um, wholesale vendors, and food distributors. And then January 1st, 2024, that will start including large restaurant facilities, hotels, health facilities, um, large venues and events, and local education agencies as well. 
How much of the food Feeding San Diego already distributes is rescued from supermarkets and restaurants? Well, overall, we rescue about 27 million pounds of food, and 70% of what we distribute is rescued food. As far as how much we get from local restaurants and local markets, we are rescuing about 900,000 pounds a month, which translates into a little over a million meals a month that we then are putting back out into the community. Okay, so even though surplus food donations are already significant, as you just told us, how much of an increase do you expect when this new law goes into effect? We don't really know exactly the amount that's going to be increased. I know that the goal is to uh, reduce the waste by 20%, but that's all throughout California. So we are just gearing up to be able to accept more food and bring on more partners, but we don't really have an exact number of how much more that would be. And how are you gearing up? How will that change your facilities and your distribution chains? What we're doing is we are looking to add more partners on the donor side because we know they're going to be out there, but we're also looking to add more partners on the distribution side. So right now we partner with about 300 local agencies such as churches or community groups that are the ones that are on the ground, right? They get the food and they distribute it to their neighbors in their community. So we're looking for more partners in that regard. And we do sign new people up every month. It's something that if people are interested in being able to distribute food into their communities, they can go to our feedingsandiego.org site. And with that, we're also gearing up. We're getting more vehicles to pick up the donations. We are asking for more volunteers to help us distribute and to go through and sort the donations. So we were pretty much gearing up for this um, all around. Well, speaking of distributing donations, I know right now you're hosting drive-through food distributions in many areas across the county. Tell us about Feeding San Diego's Together Tour. Yes, our Together Tour has been going on since February of this year, and it is such a wonderful thing that's going on. We're so glad to be able to share the food with the community. What we're doing is we're in all parts of San Diego. So, for example, this week we're in Fallbrook and Chula Vista. Next week we'll be in Ramona, San Marcos. We're also in Carlsbad, Escondido, Sereno Valley, Spring Valley. And what we do is we go to where there's a large parking lot where we can handle up to a thousand cars um, come through and there it's you can stop uh, we, we put them through very safely people stop and get the first box of dried uh, shelf stable goods it's about 25 pounds worth of product and then the next stop is they're going to get about 15 to 20 pounds of fresh fruits and vegetables and then a final stop you get about um, five to 10 pounds of a frozen protein and so it equates to about 50 pounds of food per family um, and the only thing we ask is that if you can register online, that helps us with the amount of food that we're offering. It's just a really great way to get food out to the people in San Diego that need it. Have you seen an increase in the need for food at these distributions? You know what? We definitely have. Unfortunately, we were thinking it might go down, but um, it really hasn't gone down. In fact, in the last month or two, we've seen an increase in the number of people coming. So that's unfortunate and it's the cause of what's going on in our times. So yeah, we have seen an increase and we will continue to be out there distributing the food until we see there isn't a need anymore. What about the price of food? We've been hearing that prices are going up, supply chain shortages. Has that affected getting more donations? 
Yes, the price of food has been going up, as you've been hearing, um, and we are seeing that. We belong to uh, Feeding America Network, so we're fortunate in that we're able to tap into a supply chain that services the whole country for the foods that we buy. As far as how it's affecting the cost of our donation items, we rescue food from over 200 farms um, across California, and we do have to pay for the uh, transportation of that produce, and that has just gone up extraordinarily in the last year. I mean, it's a lot more expensive now to have a truck come from middle of California, northern California down here to deliver the produce, so we are seeing a need for more financial donations actually to help us cover those costs. During the holiday season, how much consideration goes into getting the traditional holiday foods to people? I am so excited this season because, as you know, we are distributing our boxes of food out in the community. um, And this season, we made a really concerted effort to make sure there are the typical holiday items in there. So we're going to be including stuffing, sweet potatoes, mashed potatoes, cranberries, all of those things that we think about when we think about um, holiday table, particularly around Thanksgiving. So I'm very excited about those items that are going to be part of our box. And where can people get more information on finding a together tour or getting food assistance in general? Yes. So if you go to feedingsandiego.org, we've got a website. And if you would like to find help, there's a button that says find help. And it will take you to the different together tours where you can go and register and it will tell you the dates and the times and the locations and there's also a button on there too for donations if you'd like to be a donation partner whether it be food or financial it's real easy to go there and click on those and you can find your way there i've been speaking with feeding san diego chief supply chain officer patty o'connor patty thank you very much thank you kpbs on demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The San Diego Padres move forward from one of the most disappointing seasons in recent memory by hiring Bob Melvin as the team's new manager. While Melvin is among one of the most respected managers in baseball, only time will tell if his hiring will make a difference next season for the beleaguered Padres. Joining me now with more is San Diego sports writer Jay Paris. Jay, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. Always good to join you folks. What's been the initial reaction to the hiring of Bob Melvin? Are people excited about this? Excited, uh, thrilled, stunned, I think would be an appropriate term. Bob Melvin had already agreed to an extension for the 2022 season with the Oakland Athletics. And when uh, going through the long list of candidates to replace uh, Jay Stingler, who was dismissed after the season, Bob Melvin's name was not on anyone's list because he had a job, he had a contract. But with the upheaval in Oakland and their situation and them possibly moving and really the franchise being in flux, Mr. Preller, A.J. Preller, the Padres general manager, Manager sought permission to speak to Mr. Melvin. The A's granted it. And looky here, the Padres have their 22nd manager in franchise history. Hmm. Has there been much response from players or, or people within the organization to this? Yeah, I think cartwheels might be a good, <laughs> good term. <laughs> I mean, for once, they're not bringing in a manager who needs training wheels. Uh, the last two gentlemen, Andy Green, Jace Tingler, I mean, they had never been big league managers. And Bob Melvin's certainly been that. He's a three-time manager of the year. Only uh, eight people have won it three times like him. He's won 
over 1,300 games as a manager. He was a 10-year player as a catcher. I mean, when he walks in a room, you kind of sit up a little straighter. You know what I mean? He, he has that instant credibility. He has that presence. He has that been there, done that, which all these players are experienced. And uh, major league-wide, he, he's thought as one of the best communicators and one of the best, most respected managers in the game. I know some people, for example, wanted to see Ron Washington of the Braves considered. Who else was, was looked at? Uh, Ron Washington was a finalist in the last go around. Uh, of course, everybody's heart goes pitter patter over Bruce Bochy. You know, he got the first call, regardless of what anyone says. Uh, you know, he won three titles with the San Francisco Giants, but of course, uh, his heyday uh, was with the Padres. He's still one of the most iconic members uh, of of the Padres' past, and uh, they were hoping maybe the present. So, you know, Ron Washington. Uh, um, there was some other talk, you know, uh, of Bochy, and uh, even locally, Brad Osmus with Del Mar, who who managed the Tigers and Angels. Uh, his name was certainly in it. Mike Socia. I, I think what what was interesting about the search is that you know, on one side of baseball today is the analytical side and on the other side is the old school baseball if you will the game how it used to be played what makes mr melvin such a great candidate is that he's almost a hybrid he brings with him those old school um, mannerisms if you will but when somebody suggests the data suggests the analytics which is what baseball is now he doesn't you know head off in the other direction as a 60 year old screaming about not knowing what a pdf file is or something so he's able to to be an old school guy but he's certainly receptive of the data driven and analytics, which the game has come today. Is this new manager expected to be a good fit for the Padres? Baseball has changed. And, and just to put this hiring in the context, you know, old school baseball, you, you had nine different hitters and you move the ball around. You try to string together some hits and, uh, and score runs. Nowadays, the pitchers are so good <laughs> at throwing unhittable pitches that really everybody's trying to hit a home run. And uh, that's just the way the game is today. Now, the blend of the analytics, which um, A.J. Preller is, is certainly a big fan of, with what Mr. Velvin has done and can do is exciting. I think, again, is to point out that he did a lot of this recently in the last 10 years with the Oakland Athletics. Oakland routinely has one of the lowest payrolls in the league. Still, he was able to take it to the playoffs three of the last four years and uh, became the winniest manager in Oakland history. So he's done it on a low budget. So now he's going to have a bigger budget with the Padres, $180 million projected payroll next year. He's going to have the data and the stars in Manny Machado, Fernando Tassis Jr. Uh, you know, there's five all-stars on this team. So they think they've really hit a home run to sum it up. They think they've robbed the rest of the teams of one of the greatest managers in the game today. And if they were to do so without uh, anybody knowing about it only adds to the intrigue of Mr. Melvin coming to town. Now you, you touched on this, but talk a bit more about Melvin's track record of success with previous organizations when it comes to winning championships. Sure. Uh, you know, he was a bench coach for the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks when they won everything in, in 2001. He's been a manager for the Diamondbacks. He was a manager of the Mariners. He was a manager of the Oakland A's. 18 seasons of making the tough, hard decisions. And before that, again, we mentioned his playing career, which uh, when you hit 233 and 35 career homers, it didn't quite uh, pan out like he thought. But I think he, he knows what a player's going through. And, and he's not a screamer. He's not a holler guy. He's a communicator. And he does so in a manner in which 
she has empathy for a player, which is going going through rough patches. You know, every player goes through a rough patch. You know, baseball is built around failure. Uh, Tony Gwynn got out seven out of 10 times and we built a statue for him. So that shows you how difficult the game is. So I think when you have a manager who can empathize on those, uh, you know, on those during those puddles on the path to greatness, you know, it's going to be tough. That's Bob Melvin. He knows what his players are thinking and uh, he's proven time and again. It's almost like writing about the Pope. You can't find anybody to say a bad thing about him. And that's Bob Melvin. As you mentioned earlier, Melvin's hiring comes after the Padres parted ways with their previous manager, Jace Tingler. What do experts think that Melvin will bring to the table uh, that his predecessor didn't? experience. Uh, again, we go back to the training wheels. Uh, you know, nobody has to point Bob Melvin in the right direction. Nobody has to tell him what he should do next. I think just the comfort of being his own man, uh, the comfort in knowing you've done it before, and the respect the other players glean from that. Now, now, Mr. Tingler or Mr. Green, you know, two good baseball men, but when they walked into the room, they were still proving themselves. You know, you look in their sleeves, there weren't any, there weren't any stripes yet. You know, they were still earning their stripes while on the job as a manager of the Padres. Mr. Melvin walks in, he's got those stripes. He's got those big wins. He, and he's maybe more importantly, he knows how to react to the losses. He knows to react when a team goes into a tailspin. Look, that second half of the year last year was a disaster. At the All-Star break, the Padres were 15 games over 500 and looked to be a lock for the second playoff spot in the National League wildcard. And it was a complete face plant the second half. Once they started losing, there was nobody there or nobody able to, to, to pull a ripcord, if you would, and, and, and try to soften the landing. And maybe with a more experienced guy like Mr. Melvin, he would know what uh, buttons to push. Look, nobody knows how this is going to turn out, which is the beauty of baseball. But that being said, the Padres feel extremely fortunate to have Bob Melvin as their manager. The Padres have made a number of roster moves in recent years to put the team into contention, and still this year fell short of their goals. What kind of a difference will a different manager make with a team that already has so much talent? I think a different voice. And again, we go back to credibility. Uh, maybe if somebody hasn't proven themselves, and their message could be the exact same as somebody who has proven himself. But when you're hearing it from somebody who, who doesn't have that been there, done that label, maybe you, you take that advice or you take that, uh, their statements with a bit of trepidation. You know, when Bob Melvin says something, you know, he's done it. <laughs> when Bob Melvin says something, uh, he can back it up. So, so I think it's just more the, uh, not as much the message. I mean, the message is really the same, you know, play hard, have fun, win games, but it's the messenger. And, and in this way, it'd be like, a substitute teacher telling you to do your homework or a tenured faculty member who's been the teacher of the year a few times. I mean, if you're a student, you react differently. If you're a ball player, you react differently as well. I've been speaking with San Diego sports writer, Jay Paris. Jay, thanks so much for joining us. Okay. Always fun to be with you folks and have a nice day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.